Amen. Amen. Good morning. I want to say thank you for your willingness. I know this is a little inconvenient to have to wear these masks. Uh, throughout our service, our governor has uh, given us a guideline to do this in churches. This is not a mandate, but it is a guideline. And, and if you can do that, we would appreciate it. If you can't, we understand. So we'll just put it that way, okay? But we're so glad that you're here. Um, of course, it is our heart to protect our people um, and also to, to honor and, and, and um, be a blessing to what the governor asks of us as well. I believe that is in his word, the Lord's word to, uh, to do as God's people. So thank you for that. Isn't this a crazy season, crazy time? Man, it's just, it, I don't know what it feels like. It's just a crazy thing. I'm over here trying to breathe as we sing underneath the mask. Going, what is going on? Our world feels like it's sort of turned upside down, doesn't it? We're in this series called Grounded. And the reality is, if, if you're not grounded to the word of God, I can't imagine what life is like for you. I can't, I can't fathom. I mean, with the government doing all the craziness that it's doing and the election and the candidates and all the crazy of the world, I can't imagine where your heart is. Last week in our series, we talked about the fact that if you don't live your life grounded on the rock of, of Christ Jesus and his word, then you're going to live an unstable life. He, he said it's like trying to build a house on sinking sand. Other writers said that you'll be blown like the wind and the waves, and you just won't have stability in who you are and where you're investing the things of your life. And so we want to be a grounded people. We want to know that when the winds come and when the crazy of the world and, and the culture comes against us, we go, we know where we stand. We know who we are. We know maybe not what happens tomorrow, but we know who holds tomorrow, right? I, I saw Miss Ellen, those of you who know and love Miss Ellen and Brother Bobby, uh, she put that on Facebook, I think this morning. I want to pray for Bobby Johnson. He's in rehab hospital, just praying that he would get out soon. He had a fall at home, and I love that she said that. It's so true. And for those of us that know and trust the Word of God, we can be grounded in uh, what that gives us and what it, uh, how, how it changes our lives and gives us life. Here's the question we have this morning. Do you know what you believe? Do you know why you believe it? Can you communicate what you believe and why you believe it? If you can, that's called apologetics. Right? It comes from the Greek word apologia. And, uh, and that just means to be able to give a defense for what you believe. Uh, this morning, our, our main text is going to also use this word in uh, 1 Peter 3. Um, Peter, you might remember, was writing to people who he says in, in 1 Peter, says, you're, you're exiles, you're... you're uh, you're strangers, you're aliens. Different translations give these different terminologies to Christians because here we're living in a place that is not a godly place. It's, a, it's the world. And so we, we find ourselves coming up against difficult, ungodly things all the time. And so as strangers in an ungodly world, we want to be a godly people. And it's in that context that Peter says this in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 14. He says, but even if you should suffer... For righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, 
always being prepared to make a defense, apologia, to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. I want us to focus on 15. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who would ask you for the reason for the hope that is in us, right? That's what we want to be able to do as God's people. Would you pray with me this morning as we enter this text and look at this word? Father, thank you. God, thank you that you are steady ground. God, for those of us that know you and love you and want to be, uh, to know you more, God, we want to be grown up in you. We can have a firm foundation. And we can have the assurance, Lord, of who we are and who you are. And we can even communicate those things, not only by this word, but by history itself. So God, as we take a look both at history and your word, God, would you give us faith and give us minds to consider this that we talk about today and help us to be a people that would know what we believe and be able to communicate it to this world that's looking for the answer. And the only answer we should give them, God, the only answer worth anything, the only answer to lead them to you, Father, is Jesus. So God, we pray that by the Holy Spirit, you'd lead us into all truth. And Father, I pray that you would increase today, that I would decrease, that you'd be seen and heard, Father, and that by your grace, you'd help us to understand everything from your word that you've given us today. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Amen. I'll tell you a little story. There's a 19th century story about this really prominent atheist by the name of Charles Bradliff. He, uh, he challenged a local Christian uh, man in the area who was known for being a soul winner, being an evangelist. He was known for his work among the poor and the needy. He challenged him all to a debate. Uh, that man's name was Hugh Price Hughes. He challenged uh, Mr. Hughes to a debate on the validity of the claims of Christianity. And Hughes, who was always working with the poor and, and winning people to Jesus, he said, I tell you what, I will debate you on one condition, he said. He said, uh, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll debate you on, on one condition. He said, let's each bring concrete evidence of the validity of our beliefs in the form of men and women who have been redeemed from lives of sin and shame by the influence of our teaching." He said, so I'll bring 100 such men and women. He said, I challenge you to bring 100. He said, if you can't bring 100, bring 50. If you can't bring 50, bring 20. And he keeps going down. He says, if you can't bring one whose life has been made better by atheism, I mean, do we need to have this? And Bradliff withdrew from the debate. His whole point was, if we believe this word, is true, then it ought to make a difference in people's lives. And Hughes was saying, I can show you all day long the difference that God's word has made in these people's lives. Show me the difference that atheism has made in yours. And the man withdrew from the debate. The question for you this morning is, where do you stand on the truth of God's word? Do you believe it is God's word? Do you really truly believe it? Maybe you're one of these people that when you really need a verse of encouragement, you go to Pinterest. The holy Pinterest, right? And we're going to cherry pick a verse out of Pinterest because we feel a certain way and, uh, and then kind of live by that. And that's the, pretty much the extent of your Bible work. 
If that's the case, listen, you're probably one of these people that are going to be tossed back and forth by the wind of culture and some doctrine that comes along. Or maybe you would say, and most people do, by the way, in the world, would say, the Bible is outdated, it's an antiquated book of myths and fables, and, and I, don't, I don't believe it. Well, you're for sure going to be tossed around, and this is what it's going to look like. You're going to try and make sense in your life. You're going to try and navigate relationships and work and, and, and the reason that you exist. And the complexity of life and faith is going to have to be uh, understood from, from your feelings. And that won't get you very far. And what you're going to find is that nothing will satisfy your heart and your life. But you'll keep trying to stuff it with money or significance or whatever the case may be. And what you'll find is that nothing satisfies our soul but the maker of it. But if you believe in the word of God, it's the actual word of God. The word of the living God is trustworthy, life-changing word. Then you'll allow it to change you, to challenge you, to lead you, to convict you, to humble you. I like Alistair Begg, he says, you know, when we come to most books, we'll come to a book so that we can understand it. We want to understand that book. He says, the Bible, when we come to the Bible, it understands us. It's alive. It's active. It is God's holy word. It's not just some book. And if you believe in it that way, you will have sure footing and solid ground. C.S. Lewis said this, he said, Christianity, if false, of no importance but if it's true it's of infinite importance the only thing it cannot be is moderately important friends can I just tell you this when I saw that quote I thought that's what we're dealing with when it comes to faith in the Bible do we believe this is God's word I think many Christians think it's moderately important Sadly, much of the church says, yeah, the word of God, it's moderately important. But like this quote from Lewis, he's saying, it it really can't be. It's either not the word of God or it is. And if it is truly the word of God, the implications of that are huge. Do we see that? Friends, I want you to know that if if we're going to follow Christ, if we're going to be his, if we're going to be Uh, growing in him, then we have to know what we believe about the Bible. We have to be able to trust it. We have to be able to know what it says so that we can tell this questioning world about Jesus. We have to. Why in the world would they believe anything about a life in Christ or the gospel of Jesus if they couldn't trust this book we call the Bible? Why would they? It would make sense. I, this morning, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do a little bit of two different things. We're going to look at some history, and we're going to look at, I'm going to preach a little, okay? So I'm going to do a little history, and then we're going to do a little preaching. But what I want to show you this morning, and what I want you to see, and for these to be some tools in your tool belt as believers in Jesus, that the Bible is historically reliable. We can trust this book as a historical, vetted document. You know, sometimes people see the Bible and they might see the series of the Lord of the Rings and go, yeah, those are kind of similar. Interesting, crazy stories, different things. No, one is true and verified by history. One is make-believe. 
and yet sometimes we treat them the same. The Bible's historically reliable. It's defended by eyewitnesses. It's supernaturally proven, and it comes with the highest endorsements. I want to show you this morning. So the first thing, historically reliable. The Bible, if we're going to show that the Bible is historically relevant and reliable, we've got to give it a sense of uh, vetting that you would give any book from antiquity. Any book that's been found in history to seem significant will put the Bible right in with any of those tests, right? Many of you have heard of Plato and his writings. There's seven copies uh, from Plato's work. And when, when they do this, when they test these ancient scripts and these ancient texts, what they do, the, the process is called textual criticism. And, and it has to do with how many copies they found. It has to do with how far removed the earliest copy we have is removed from the original date of its writing, right? It has to do with some different factors and filters. Well, Plato's writing, there's seven copies, 1,300 years removed from the earliest document we have from when it was written. A long time, right? 1,300 years. Uh, Caesar's Gallic Wars, or Gaelic Wars, 10 copies total, uh, over 1,000 over years removed from the original. Now, this one's fairly impressive. This is Homer's Iliad, which was basically the Bible for the Greeks. But there's, there's been found 643 Manuscripts, there's quite a, quite a few. The earliest complete text is removed 400 years from the earliest copy that we have. Okay, 400 years. So it's getting, we're getting more trustworthy and better, right? Because the more copies, the better. The closer to the original date, the better. Does that make sense? So the closest one here is, is Homer's Iliad with 643 copies removed 400 years. But the one that, that blows away the rest is the New Testament of the Bible. We have found 5,686 Greek partial and complete manuscript portions. They're copied by hand uh, from the second century all the way to the 15th century. There are over 10,000 Latin Vulgate versions and 9,300 earlier versions. In total, 25,000, around 25,000 manuscripts from antiquity of the New Testament. A few more than 643, don't you think? Huge. More than any other work in history. It's incredible. Uh, the earliest copies of the New Testament that we have are 30 years removed. Around 30 years removed from the original. The Iliad was 400 years removed. But the New Testament, 30 years removed. So you might be sitting there kind of asking some questions. This may be raising some questions for you, and I want to give a chance to maybe answer some of those. So here's a question. Since we don't have an original, and we don't have an original of the Bible, we don't have uh, one of Paul's letters to the churches. We don't have one of the Gospels written by the apostles or, or the other two. <laughs> right? We don't, we don't have that original. So we have copies. How can we trust these copies? Well, there's such an overwhelming amount of copies. In fact, it was the most copied text in the ancient world. Everywhere the church was, they're making copies. And so we have so many of these copies, the earliest again from 30 years from the original, that they, they create this filter where they can just overlay these copies and see what is consistent. 
And as they find what is consistent, they can know with almost complete certainty, this is the original text. That's what you hold in your hands. It's how we know we can trust it. Now, there are some minor discrepancies in some of these copies. I won't lie to you. There are some copy errors and things, but they have no significant uh, play on, on what's being said whatsoever. Uh, but what's interesting is it's kind of made easy because when you have 100 copies that say one thing and 24,000 <laughs> that say something else, you can go with the 24,000. It makes it easy to kind of know more what the original work was. Often in your Bible, if you have a study Bible or, or, or other, occasionally it'll say in the, in the text, in the footnotes, that this is a verse that was either taken out or added potentially. And so they give you an awareness of that potential sometimes in our Bibles. Uh, when it comes to the Old Testament, you might ask, well, well, what about the Old Testament? Well, since even Jesus' times, the Old Testament canon has been one that has been trusted from uh, the Jewish history. So the same 39 books of the Old Testament canon that you have in your Bible are the same ones that the Jews had when Jesus was walking the earth. And he affirms those 39 books in that entire canon. The word canon, is, it just means uh, standard or rule. It's the list of books that we have right? What's interesting about the Old Testament is the earliest copy we had, complete copy, was from around 900 A.D. Well, what happened in 1947 uh, was the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls. A little shepherd boy is, is um, around the Dead Sea's area, and he's got a goat or sheep going somewhere, and he throws a rock at it, and the rock goes into a cave. And instead of him hearing maybe what he would normally recognize as the sound of a rock in a cave, he hears a rock hit some pottery, and it gets his interest. And he climbs up into the cave and finds a ton of pottery, each filled with ancient manuscripts of the Bible and other manuscripts. 500 volumes, in fact. It was, it was one of the greatest discoveries in archaeology ever, especially towards the Bible. What's interesting about this is the book of Isaiah was a complete book of Isaiah from 100 years before Jesus. So what's so cool is in 1947, they're going, let's look, this will be a great study. Let's look at our version of Isaiah, and then let's look at the version of Isaiah from 100 years before Christ, which is 2,000 years removed. And let's see how different they are. Let's see if things have been changed, and let's take a good look. Do you know that there was nothing of any meaningful change that had been tweaked or added or subtracted. No meaningful change whatsoever. So we can be confident that the Bible that we hold, that we study, that we read, that we teach from is in essence the original text. We can be confident of that, not just because it, we, it feels good to say it, but because of historical accounts. I think this is interesting. I love watching the History Channel. I, I'm, Archaeology interests me. I think it's amazing. Do you know that there have been 25,000 archaeological digs concerning the Bible or stories from the Bible? 25,000, and not one has contradicted the Bible. Not even one. Instead, they've all confirmed it. It's incredible. This, again, this is not a, a feel-good thing that you can tell people who don't know Christ something about. This is historically documented fact, and it's amazing. So another question might be, okay, well, we can trust that these are uh, 
the books and the letters that the apostles wrote, and we can know that. But how can we know they're the right books? Because I've heard of other books. You've heard of maybe of apocryphal books or books that have names of maybe apostles in some ways. Why don't we include those in the Bible? Um, and that's a good, that's a good question. Uh, the early church, of course, we talked about this when we are going through our Acts study, didn't have the New Testament. It was very slowly kind of coming around as, as Paul and Peter and the other apostles are writing to the church. The New Testament is sort of being formed. But the, the early church uh, in the New Testament didn't have the Bible. And, of course, we even see in Galatians, Paul starts talking about some guys are coming here trying to teach you an, an, uh, a, a different gospel. Remember? He, he talks about in different books about different things, Gnosticism and all these things that were coming into the church. And so the church had to be real careful about what it took in as truth and what, how are they going to know what to believe and what to read and take as the truth. And so very quickly the church realized they needed to be sure of what was God's word, what was being spoken. Remember last week I even talked about the fact that Peter in 2 Peter talks about Paul's writing as scripture. In fact, he says the words, is, you know, other, just like other scriptures. So he gives equality to the, to the Old Testament, to Paul's writings. It is scripture, right? And so there's a few, what's interesting about this is the early church came up with sort of a fourfold process and filter for how it was going to determine what books would be added into the New Testament. Uh, the first kind of filter is called apostolicity. In other words, it just means, a big word that just means apostles have to write the book. If not an apostle, it has to be a firsthand account or interview of an apostle. So I'll give you an example. We studied through the book of Acts. Luke was not an apostle, but he had firsthand access to Paul. He had access to Peter. He had access to Mary in the early church. And so as he's writing the gospel of Luke for a most excellent Theophilus, remember that guy? As he's writing the book of Luke and the book of Acts, he's getting this firsthand account from these people. And it can be trusted. So uh, they would say, well, the books of the New Testament are going to have to have been written by an apostle or firsthand account interview with apostles. Okay? The second filter was this. It had to come from antiquity. They had some books that were showing up uh, 150 years after the last apostle had died or 100 years after the last apostle died. Uh, books like the Gospel of Barnabas. And you might go, wait, wait, Barnabas, that was, that was Paul's partner. I, this is probably important that we look at the gospel according to Barnabas, right? That's probably important. Well, the thing is, Barnabas didn't write it. And Barnabas had been dead for 100 years when the book came out. And it's full of uh, heretical information. Information that doesn't honor Christ and is not uh, the same standard of truth that Jesus spoke of. In fact, that's the third filter that the early church had, orthodoxy. Does it have the same theological stance that Jesus taught with and that the apostles taught with. If there's something weird in there, and trust me, you read those apocryphal books, there's some weirdness. There's some real weirdness that the early church said, no, this, they, this doesn't count in the New Testament canon. So they had apostolicity, antiquity, orthodoxy, and then the last filter was universality. Meaning, if majority of the church around the known world is using this book, it has these other three things as well, then there's probably something we should consider in this. In other words, if there was a book that came from one little sect and it, they couldn't prove it and it didn't seem to have uh, taken on in other churches around the world, they, would, they wouldn't uh, allow it. So this is sort of the fourfold method 
of determining the authenticity of New Testament books. And as the church is being inundated with heretical books and and heresy and and false teachers coming into the church, the church started realizing we gotta gotta close this thing up. This is something that we've gotta, uh, we gotta know what we believe and why we believe it. I mean, are we just gonna continue to add what people say, thus saith the Lord? Well, no, right? We said this even last week. The, the last few sentences in the book of Revelation say, you cannot add to this revelation. And if you do, there's consequences for doing that, right? And so we, they, we didn't really have a canon of the New Testament, but one came out by a heretic by the name of Marcion. He, uh, he about 140, he decided, hey, here's a canon for scripture, use this. But it was filled with heretical books and ideas, and so the church did not accept it, thank goodness. And it wasn't until the fourth century that the early church father, uh, Athanasius, gave us the canon of the New Testament that you hold right now, right? 27 books of the New Testament, and amazingly, miraculously preserved for us. And you know what's also a miracle? It's, it's fairly undisputed. I mean, how many uh, faiths, how many denominations, how many religions uh, study the Bible and really don't dispute much of that canon because of this fourfold system of authenticity. We can trust that this is God's word. You know what I like to do? I like to make things simple. I'm kind of a simple guy. And I'd like for us just to pull back to a 30,000 foot view on this history thing of the Bible and take a look at this. If we take a look at the big picture historically of the Bible, you need to understand that it is a collection of writings, right? It's not just one writer, it's a collection of writings from 40 different authors. Those 40 authors are from a diversity of life. So everybody from kings to shepherds to fishermen to tax collectors speak into what this is. And you can even see their personality at times come through the writing. And yet God is the only real author of the text. Not one individual claim apart from God himself. It's written on, in uh, three different languages, Hebrew, Greek, Aramaic, a little bit of Aramaic. Written on three different continents, Asia, Africa, Europe. Written over a 1,500-year time period of a meta-narrative of Scripture, this arc of Scripture that is consistent. So even though it speaks on all these different themes, all these different subjects, all this different history, there is one theme from Genesis to Revelation that's a, that's a miracle. Some of us have been around the church so long, it's hard for us to even understand what I'm talking about here and see that. We dive into one book or we dive into one story. What I want you to do is pull back and see from Genesis chapter 3, Jesus is prophesied that he would defeat Satan. And you go 1,500 years all the way to Revelation and we see it played out in heaven. This is an amazing, amazing, miraculous book 66 books in all. I like the way uh, Josh McDowell, he's got a really wonderful volume called Evidence That Demands a Verdict. He says in that, he says, the Old Testament law provides the foundations for Christ. The historical books show the the preparation for Christ. The poetical uh, books aspire to Christ. The prophecies show an expectation of Christ. The gospels record the historical manifestation of Christ. The acts show the propagation of Christ. The epistles give the interpretation of Christ. The revelation is the consummation of all things in Christ. From the beginning to the end, the Bible is about Jesus. 
one consistent meta-narrative about Jesus. Without a doubt, the Bible stands up to historical criticism, and it's been attested to its authenticity more than any other text in antiquity. Not how I feel about it. What does history say? Well, here's the second thing I want us to take a look at, and that is that it's defended by eyewitnesses. If somebody creates, uh, has a crime, commits a crime, the first question is, was there any eyewitnesses, right? If somebody could say, yeah, I was there, I saw this guy do something, that's impressive. If there's more, it's even better. Look with me in 2 Peter uh, 1. I want to show you some of these eyewitness accounts from the apostles. 2 Peter 1, 16 says, For we did not follow cleverly designed myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice born from heaven. For we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Verse 20, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. No prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Peter's saying, we didn't just come up with this. This isn't just some fable, it's not just some myth. I was there. I heard God's voice. I've been with Jesus. I've seen his miracles. It's a big deal. Luke even records the importance of eyewitness testimony. Luke chapter 1, verse 1, he says this, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely uh, for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you, watch this, that you may have what? Certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. Luke is trying to tell us we can have certainty in this word. We can have certainty in our faith and what God has shown us and what we see. And he's talking about how, because of this eyewitness testimony. Of course, he's speaking of uh, Peter and Mary that he's interviewed. Of course, Paul as well, later in Acts. Also, the Apostle John weighs in about the the importance of personal testimony and experience. And I want you to look how how intent he gets to try and show us um, what it's like to be there with him. 1 John 1, 1 through 4, he says, That which was from the beginning, speaking of Jesus, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and, his, and with his Son Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. He said, I heard him, I saw him, I touched him, I was with him. This is my witness. This is my testimony. Paul later begins to explain to the church in Corinth how important personal testimony, eyewitness testimony is to our faith. 
Trust my witness is basically what he's saying. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 1, Paul says to the Corinthian church, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and in which you stand, and by which you are being saved if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Then he says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, then to the 12. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at the same time. Let me read that again. 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, which was his brother. Then to all the apostles, last of all as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Paul here is just laying out the facts of eyewitness testimony, right? He's saying Christ died in accordance with the scriptures. He was uh, buried and resurrected in three days in accordance with the scriptures. And he appeared to these people. I'm giving you names. I'm giving you time frame. I'm giving you specifics. If you don't believe me, go ask some of them because a lot of them are still living. If you're struggling with this and you don't believe some of these names that I mentioned, Go talk to, there's over 500 people that saw him. I mean, it's incredible. I mean, can you imagine a, a crime scene today and the cops show up and they're like, any eyewitnesses? And you're like, well, yeah, all 500 of us saw it go down. Case closed, right? I mean, think about it. Case closed. No argument, no discussion. 500 witnesses. So then you might ask, well, how do we know they're telling the truth? It's a good question. This morning I was looking over, when I got to church here, I was in my office, I was looking over Fox's Book of Martyrs. Interesting book. Um, it's, a, it's a thick book of different believers starting, uh, I think it starts with Jesus, and, and goes all the way through different parts of church history of people who've given their lives for Christ as martyrs. We know they're telling the truth because you don't die for a lie. You don't. Why would you? Why would you die for something that is untrue? Every single apostle uh, except for maybe one in John, gave his life in a violent death. And John didn't ex escape all violence. He was boiled and somehow miraculously lived because he was still to write the book of Revelation, I think. You know, uh, some of you might remember the name Chuck Colson. It's kind of timely because he was a part of Richard Nixon's campaign. And he was part of the uh, Watergate scandal. And he went to prison. He said when he was in prison, there were 12 of them that went to prison, I think is what he said. And he said, within six months, you would not believe how the lies, they were all telling kind of one lie, and over six months, they begin to change stories very quickly to get out of prison. And all of a sudden, it was what, what was supposedly a truth at one point, then was an obvious lie, right? All these people are doing whatever they could to get out of the circumstance they were in. He said, one of the things that brought me to Christ is realizing Jesus' effect on these men 
his miracles, his life, the truth of who he truly was, not one said, I want out. Not one said, okay, I'll, I'll tell you it wasn't true. Not even one. Everyone died a violent death apart from John, and all of them died with the witness and the testimony that Jesus was who he said he was. It's interesting, Paul uses this phrase that, that uh, in, in this text that we just looked at, that Jesus was crucified according to the scriptures, that he was buried and raised according to the scriptures. It's an interesting point because what he's saying here is that the scriptures have already said something. The Old Testament has given prophecies to what's gonna happen with Messiah. So when Messiah comes, Messiah needs to do these things that are prophesied in order to be Messiah, right? Jesus did every single one. Every single one. It's supernaturally proven, this word. Uh, between 500 and 1,000 years before Jesus was born, these prophecies were written. Now you tell me how this can happen apart from the Bible being a true, actual word of God that he's written. One author writing one story. Predictions happened 500 to 1,000 years before his birth. He's predicted in Genesis 3 that he would defeat Satan. Let me just go through a few, a few of these and let this blow your mind as it does mine. He was prophesied that he would come from the house and lineage of David, which he did, we're told in Matthew chapter 1. Yeah, we're told that uh, he would be born of a virgin birth in Bethlehem, and he was. Uh, there's prophecies of a forerunner coming before him, an Elijah-type character. Of course, we know that to be John the Baptist. It says that he would ride, the prophecy said he would ride into Jerusalem on a donkey, which he did. That he would be celebrated as Hosanna, which he was. That he would be betrayed, and he was. That his side would be pierced. There, were, there was a prediction or prophecy that says he, the Messiah will have no bones broken. So when the soldiers came up to the three on the crosses, and they see that uh, two of them may not be dead yet, they break their legs and it causes them to die quickly. They come to Jesus in the middle of them and Jesus is already dead. And instead of breaking one of his bones, they take a spear and they pierce it through his, hip, through his ribs. And of course we know the story is that blood and water flowed, which is a condition that only happens in death. It was prophesied. It was prophesied that his hands and his feet would be pierced. It was prophesied that he would suffer in our place as our substitute for our sins. It was prophesied that he'd be sold for 30 pieces of silver, and he was. It was prophesied that his bones wouldn't be broken, and they weren't. It was prophesied that he would die with wicked ones, and on either side there were thieves, and he did. It, it was prophesied that he would die and be resurrected, and he was prophesied that men would cast lots for his clothing, and they did, that there would be darkness over the land, and there was, that he would be buried in a rich man's tomb, and he was, his name was Nicodemus. It was prophesied that he would ascend into heaven, and he did. How do, and that's just a few. Some people think there's over 500 messianic prophecies in the Old Testament. I've just written, read, uh, read to you maybe 12 or 15. How do you explain that apart from one author, God Almighty? How is it possible? Apart from what the writer of Hebrews says that Jesus is the author and perfecter of our faith. God's word has supernaturally proven the Bible to be true time and time again in every prophecy. Listen, not a percentage here. Every prophecy 
has been fulfilled in Jesus. Lastly, before we go, the Bible comes with some pretty high endorsements. Jesus himself on the road to Emmaus. I love the story of the Jesus on the road to Emmaus. He, he kind of disguises himself in some way. I'm not sure how it happens, but two disciples walking along the road, and Jesus comes up and says, hey, what are you guys talking about? Tell me what's been going on. And, you know, they begin to say, you haven't heard about Christ dying and all these things. And Jesus walks along with them for a while until he gets frustrated with them, right? And he's like, okay, guys, it's me, Luke 24, 25. He says to them, oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. He's talking about the Old Testament. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? He's talking about prophecy. And look at this amazing verse, verse 27. And beginning with Moses, which is the first five books of the Bible, we call it the Pentateuch. Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures, in all the Old Testament, the things concerning himself. In this moment, Jesus is verifying the validity of the Old Testament. In this moment, he's saying, I'm going to show you all these prophecies that are concerning me so that you can understand. I wish I could have been there in that day. That would have been amazing. But I want you to see that Jesus, even in his ministry, verifies the Old Testament. He speaks of stories from the Old Testament like uh, Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel, Noah, Abraham, Sodom and Gomorrah, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, manna falling in the wilderness, the bronze serpent, David and Solomon, Queen of Sheba, Elijah, Elisha, the widow of Zarephath, Naaman, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Zechariah, and even Jonah getting swallowed by a big fish. So many Christians go, eh, I'm not sure about that. Well, Jesus said it happened. So then you're, you're forced to this question, is Jesus a liar? Does he lie? He cannot. He cannot lie. Jesus gives credibility to the Old Testament, but he also gives it to the New this is very interesting. Of course, you know, at the time of Jesus' ministry, a New Testament wasn't written. Fascinating verse. Look with me. John 16, verse 12. And I'm almost done here. Jesus says, I still have many things to say to you. This is, he's wrapping up his ministry. He's, this is toward the end of his ministry. He says to the apostles, the disciples, I have a lot of things still to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes... He will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Jesus here is speaking about the New Testament. He's saying the Holy Spirit's going to come and reveal some things to you, and you're going to write it down. because You can't take it right now, but you will. I'm not finished teaching you. Uh, Alistair Begging, I love this pastor and teacher. He says the, the apostles, by writing the New Testament, in a way were being obedient to Jesus' great commission. Remember what he said? He said, go and make disciples in all the world, and I'll be with you to the end of the age. Well, their, their writing the New Testament was partially uh, them continuing to make disciples all over the world and to the end of the age. Jesus even said that God's word would last forever, Matthew 5. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, do not think I've come to abolish the law of the prophets. That, that was kind of the phrase to use for the Old Testament, the entire 39 
canon, 39 book canon. I've not come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. He says, for truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not even the smallest little dot, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until it is all accomplished. God's word will endure. Regardless of what's going on in our world, right? Regardless of what's happening in our culture. And how in the world can we deny that it is the actual, inspired, truthful word of God when it's trustworthy historically? Like no other book in history. When it's defended by eyewitnesses, willing to give their very lives and not depart from it. When it's been 100% accurate in prophecies. And by the way, it'll continue to be. They're not over yet. <laughs> right? Be encouraged, Christian. It's not done yet. Not done yet. And the fact that there is no higher authority for the validity of the, of the word of God other than Jesus himself. He validates the Old and the New Testament. So here's a question before we go. Do you believe this word? Do you believe it? Have you been sort of on the fence? Have you been kind of not sure? <laughs> because I promise you, the world is at least there, if not further. But it is trustworthy. It is true. And John wrote his gospel, the gospel of John. He tells us for a very specific purpose, so that we would believe. So as I close, I want to give you this one last verse. John chapter 20, verse 30. John says, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Friends, can I, can I just mention that C.S. Lewis quote again? He says, Christianity, if false, is of no importance, but if it's true, it's of infinite importance. Is it, is it false or is it true? I think that's a question that you have to answer in your heart. But if you answer today that the word of God is the word of God and it is true, then you have to look at your life and say, do I live like this is the word of God? Do I honor God in this way that I believe this is the word of God? Have I submitted myself to this holy word and, and I'm going to live it and I'm going to honor it and I'm going to be a person known by it, standing upon it, grounded on it? My prayer for us, for you this morning, is that the word of God would be esteemed in our lives. Because we can't grow unless we get to that position and believe it with all of our hearts. That this is the holy word of God. It's what we live by. It's the worldview we see everything through. May we be grounded as a result of believing it. Living the way it tells us to live. And trusting that it truly is his actual and inspired word. Would you pray with me? God, I pray that as believers, we would not moderately value your word. God, I know I've been guilty of this. I've been guilty of kind of just treating it like uh, some suggestions or some 
rule book or some storybook, but God, it is truly your voice to your people. It is truly navigation in the middle of a world gone mad. It is truly your book for instruction of how do we raise our children and love our spouses and serve our communities. God, may we value it and esteem it above all books and all understanding because it is your true revealed word. God, this is your voice to us. May we align our lives, even now. God, as I'm praying right now, if there's somebody in this place that doesn't know you as their Savior, God, may they submit to you, ask you to forgive them of their sins and save them today to stand on the solid rock of who you are, Jesus, and your word. God, if there's somebody in this place today or watching online right now that has been tossed back and forth, not knowing what to make of the Bible, God, help them to trust that it truly is your word. And God, for those of us that we have to lean, we have to trust, we have to stand on this solid ground, God, give us the faith to believe and to know this assurance, this certainty Luke speaks of, that this is your word. How could we deny it with those things we've even looked at today? And there's a million more. May we value this word with all that we are and know it as your people. That is our prayer today. And we pray it in Jesus' precious name.